0: Confronting historical narratives of structural injustice, fueled by fear and sustained by anger. Defending the rights of the destitute in proximity? Hello and welcome to Proximate, where we enjoin you to extend your politics beyond your personal experiences and comfort to fight for justice. You're now tuned in with Diana St. Till. Be Proximate! Good evening all, thank you for joining our live conversation for what I presume will be very informative and action-oriented. I am Diana St. Till, the founder and host of the B Proximate podcast. You can find more information on my website at beproximate.org. It is my pleasure and honor to be accompanied by two women of excellence from my hometown that have set the bar high yet attainable because of their intentionality to pay it forward. They are staunch attorneys who use their voices to effectuate change and create opportunities for all. And in acknowledgement of Haitian Heritage Month, we are all of Haitian descent and represent our culture with pride. As a disclaimer, while the guests and myself may speak with passion and provide our personal opinions, this is by no means intended to convince or condemn anyone for the side of the scale you are on. It's an informative conversation based on facts in the law, in light of verdicts from precedent cases, using public information. Please note that this is an active investigation, therefore the responses are limited to what has yet to be discovered. So I am joined today by Marta Sanan and Ruth Orange. To kick us off, I am going to read a statement that was issued by the owners of the property under construction that Ahmaud Aubrey was on a few minutes before his fatal encounter with the McMichaels and it reads as such. First and foremost, the English family, the homeowners, want Ahmad Arbery's parents to know that they are very sorry for the loss of their son and they are praying for them. Second, it is crucial to understand that the English family, the homeowners, were not part of what the McMichaels did. The first accounts suggested a link between the McMichaels and the homeowners, but there is none. The English family had no relationship with the McMichaels and did not even know what had occurred until after Mr. Arbery's death was reported to them. After seeing Mr. Arbery's photo and new- reports larry english did not even think mr arby was the person that appears in this video even if it had been however mr english would never have saw a vigilant response much less one resulting in a tragic death the english family also noted that they were notified when arby entered the property and stated that since october several people have stopped and looked inside the property ahmad was not the first and based on the statement the owners didn't state any suspicion as ahmad didn't take anything or vandalize in light of what was stated, Martha Ruth, either one of you can kick us off with answering this question. It's of paramount importance to be informed and mindful about both sides of the arguments. What would make for a strong opening argument for both the prosecution and the defense? And who has the burden of proof? I think that for
1: the defense of the McMichaels' father and son, they're going to stress out that the burden of proof isn't on them. The burden of proof is on the state of Georgia to prove that the McMichaels' You know, premeditated this killing. And for me, going back to the prosecution's opening, I think that the story that they're going to present is that, yes, it was premeditated. We're talking about you know, McMichaels the father who saw this young man jogging in his neighborhood. You know, the defense is probably gonna to try to paint the picture that McMichaels has been working in the investigation line thirty years as a, a cop and seven years as a prosecutor with the district attorney's office. He's been doing this for nearly four decades. In the four decades that he's been serving the state of Georgia, there's no way that he would have remembered that he even encountered mister Arbery. But then the prosecution is going going to paint that picture like you know he knew who this guy was he found the opportunity to pursue him it clearly was premeditated uh, mr mcmichael senior saw ahmad running in the neighborhood had time to not pursue him yet still pursued him when he picked up the phone to call his son who lives in the neighborhood still had time you know we'll say two minutes at minimum right either him or his son called the other guy who actually videotaped it and I think is just as guilty as the other two, right? It's premeditated in the sense that this guy didn't just get up and say he's going to record this. They knew what they were doing. It wasn't planned out. How are you so calculated? How is it that you didn't shoot him just once, you know? And why should he listen to your commands? Being black in America is already as hard as it is. Being black in America in a predominantly white neighborhood it's hard, and Marta and Diana. I know you guys can attest to this. Being a black professional in America is hard as it is. I remember the first time I walked through a courtroom here, and I walked past a bar where the bailiff was, and he asked me how he could help me. So I'm anticipating watching this trial.
2: I appreciate Ruth. You can tell she's a trial attorney through and through. I do want to clarify the misconception that I've been seeing in social media and articles being posted with regard to the prosecution, as Ruth stated, The burden is on the prosecution. They have to meet the standard. And just to clarify for those who are like, well, what's the standard and what's the burden? So the standard of proof is the amount of evidence an attorney, a party has to put forth to have a successful outcome. The prosecution is responsible for proving every element of the case. And the prosecution is the prosecuting attorney. We're on our fourth one now. And you might be asked, what's a prosecutor? A prosecutor is an attorney that works for the government. Okay and they are generally elected. We'll talk about that later. They're the ones that are going to proceed with the legal proceedings against the McMichaels. I want to clarify this because Ahmad Arbery's family has an attorney that has been speaking on their behalf in certain instances. That is not the prosecutor. That's the family's attorney that may work with them with regards to a civil settlement, which is separate. But the prosecutor, they're the ones that are going to be dealing with the criminal
0: side of it. Thank you for the breakdown, Ruth and Marta. So inevitably, Ahmad's past will come into question. While the public may interpret it as character defamation, is it reasonable to conclude that Ahmad's prior offenses, gun at a school function and shoplifted, will have a rational connection to this case or will serve as proof of intent? So I'll jump in because I've been
2: penting to Ruth because she's a child attorney. <laughs> but um, we've seen this before. The vilification of men and women of color is not new at all. Now, in this particular case, what the defense will likely use. And again, right now speaking as a private citizen with a legal background, I don't have the full information. I don't have the full facts, but what I see, what I imagine, um, what I anticipate is the defense using these prior convictions and prior offenses to paint Ahmad as a villain, as a monster, as someone who had the propensity to be violent, right? And with that, that'll be helpful in a couple of different ways. One, we know that McMichael Sr. now, I mean, it wasn't initially apparent from what I've seen on any police report or anything like that, that he had a prior relationship, but now we know that Michael Sr did have prior interactions. The district attorney, Barnhill, the second district attorney, said that he worked with him in the, in previous instances with respect to the shoplifting and apparently running away. There was a police officer that had a fractured wrist as a result. In that instance, the defense might say, hey, he knew, he had immediate knowledge that Ahmad had the ability to commit a felony, which is why the citizen's arrest was necessary when he saw this man jogging in his neighborhood head. Two, with respect to self-defense, again, we want to vilify the Black man. We want to make him look as scary as possible because then self-defense makes sense. Hey, I can come up to you with a loaded gun, not even come up to you, but pursue you, chase you with these loaded weapons, and then turn around and say, I'm the victim because you are so big, bad, and scary. I was just trying to do my civic duty and carry out a lawful citizen's arrest. The district attorney said if he had just stopped, they were just trying to carry out a lawful citizen's arrest. If He had just stopped. No harm, no foul. I mean, we as people of color know that necessarily wouldn't play out that way. But with respect to the law, this is how the convictions and offenses might be used. I will say this. There are rules of evidence with respect to common law and statute that govern the type of facts that can be used. So while we are aware of these convictions and while we are aware of these prior offenses, they have to fall within specific exceptions to be used in the court of law. With respect to the Supreme Court of Georgia in Chandler v. State, I'm also saying this because I want to give individuals the opportunity to read these cases as well. So often people think, well, I'm not a lawyer. I'll just get one. But we have to be educated and involved and aware of our rights as well and what is available to us. So in the Supreme Court of Georgia case, Chandler v. State, The court stated that specific acts of violence by a victim against uh, third parties is permissible. Those convictions and offenses, they can come into play. You can talk about them if the defendant is saying that they're relevant to justifying self-defense. But another Supreme Court says you have to show that the prior crimes involved had to do with violent crimes. So the facts that we have so far is, have to do with shoplifting and a gun that was tucked in this boy's pants when he was younger. Now, I don't know how it's going to be painted that these were violent crimes that need to come into play to show that he has a propensity for violence, but that's definitely going to be an argument that the defense needs to make to show that this is relevant, they need to come in. And then it's going to be the prosecution job to state that these facts are not relevant but in the state of georgia there was another case i want us to know our history i'm in sam v hose it had to do with a black man who going to the the self-defense right and coming in with violent offenses and how they can be used to vilify a black man so this man was threatened by his boss and while he was working he had an axe black man through the axe to defend himself ultimately ended up killing his boss who had a loaded revolver to his face and threatened to use it. This black man was ultimately lynched. So my question is with respect to these violent crimes and how they come into play with justifying the McMichaels use of self-defense, I want to know how this statute is going to be used to justify Ahmad's self-defense. You brought guns into his face and he has the right to resist. There's Georgia case law stating that too. But again, the defense is going to say, he's dangerous. We had to shoot because he's dangerous. So we had to use self-defense. Well, how how does that statute apply when a Black man has to use self-defense? I'm interested to see how that's going to play out.
0: I'm also interested to see how that's going to play out. So based on recent information from the Georgia Peace Officer Standards and Training Council, Gregory McMichael was issued multiple suspension orders after neglecting to maintain mandatory firearms and use of force trainings while employed, with the most recent one in February 2019, a year before he engaged in citizen's arrest to justify his actions. So this is a two-part question. One, how much weight will his extensive law enforcement background, former police officer and DA investigator, have in determining that his presumption of mod being a burglary suspect was sound judgment for vigilant justice? And two, Will his failure to follow through with appropriate trainings be grounds for questioning his judgment?
1: I'm of the opinion, and I'm not speaking as an attorney, I'm not speaking as a juror, I'm not speaking as a professional in the field of law, I'm just speaking as a lay person. I think that his extensive background in law enforcement is going to affect him regardless. He's been in law enforcement for nearly four decades, and in his four decades, He remembers who he wants to remember. You know, I don't want to speak for cops because I've never been a cop. I feel like they'll definitely never forget a face. I'm of the opinion that his extensive background in law enforcement should tell him that he knew better. You knew that you needed proper training to keep up your licenses, but you neglected to keep up with that stuff. The fact that the government took nearly three months you know we were going on to the third month before an arrest was made shows you he's licensed to kill. You pursue somebody with a shotgun for goodness sake, I'm not stopping. I'm not stopping for anybody with a shotgun. you know, and Ahmad stood no chance. you know if he tried to run the other direction, he was gonna get shot. So I think the fact that um Gregory McMichael has't a very extensive background in law enforcement tells anybody he knew. Better than to pursue that young man with the shotgun. He knew better than to make what they call citizens' arrest. He's held to a higher standard. We expect more from people who are protecting our community. And his failure to keep up with his licenses and and be negligent. I mean, I think that all falls on you know the law enforcement agency that he worked for, number one, and also for the, the district attorney's office because the reason why Gregory McMichael killed Ahmad. And I wouldn't be surprised if this wasn't his first murder, is because he's gotten away with so much in the past. The law enforcement agency that he worked for didn't give a rat's whether or not he kept up with his licenses. Um, the district attorney's office that he worked for also let him get away with a whole lot. And we see that. Not, and I'm not speaking from any knowledge here. I'm speaking just from the simple fact that it took three months to make an arrest, or nearly three months to make an arrest, not because not because they saw the video, because they did see the video. There was an arrest made because we saw the video. The people saw the video. Black people all over America have made an outcry for there to be an arrest, and this is just the beginning. This isn't enough for us. He's gotten away with so much in the past. I think his extensive law enforcement background is gonna have a whole lot of weight in this case. I think the jury's gonna see it as man knew better, and. The reason why he went so far is because he knew that he could. He knew who he was working for. He probably called his DA friends before killing this guy. And that's where I stand.
0: I stand with you. So on that note, can intent be proven and are there sufficient evidence to deem Ahmad as a criminal suspect?
2: Based on the facts, again, it goes to the citizen's arrest. So whether or not it was within his immediate knowledge that an offense has taken place and the offense, it's not specified in the statute. So it could be a misdemeanor. It can be a felony. I know that the claim was that it was associated with Burglary, and now that there's a tape that it's associated with trespassing. So, all of these various factors as to justify why he had the authority to carry out a citizen's arrest. Can attempt be proven here with respect to whether or not Ahmad was a criminal suspect? I don't know, but I definitely know that there is going to be an argument again, because prosecution has the burden that they have to argue that the defense did not have immediate knowledge, that the facts that they did know, the fact that they saw this man just dogging did not suffice. I know they're going to pull in the other neighbor's call with regards to the dispatch. And part of the dispatch that we've seen so far, I've read the individual who's responding to the call says, please tell me what they did wrong. And all McMichael's Senior says is, I just saw him haul ass. Now, what, what part of offense is that? Somebody running? I, I have no idea, but it's definitely going to be the prosecution's responsibility to negate the fact that there was evidence to show a lawful citizen's arrest.
1: And whether or not uh, Maude was a criminal suspect, who cares? Even if he was a criminal suspect, it, it doesn't rise to the point of killing him. Shooting him, pursuing this guy. The dad's out of the pickup truck with a shotgun. Could you imagine thinking that you're going for a run today and then you get stopped with a shotgun pointed at you? If they would have minded their business, Ahmad would still be here today.
0: Ahmad would most certainly be alive today. In light of that, it's probable that the attorneys will pursue a federal investigation. However, if we recall from the Trayvon Martin case, federal investigation was a closed case because there was no evidence... Beyond a reasonable doubt that Zimmerman's actions violated Section 3631 of Title 42 and Section 249 of Title 18, which are criminal civil rights statutes. Section 3631 criminalizes woefully using force or threat of force to interfere with a person's federally protected housing rights on account of that person's race or color. Section 249 criminalizes willfully causing bodily injury to a person because of that person's actual or perceived race. Given the unspoken obligation to remain consistent in rulings from precedent cases, should we expect the same decision for this case if there is a federal investigation?
2: With respect to Zimmerman, the United States Department of Justice, they opened up that investigation to see if there was enough evidence to determine whether or not Zimmerman violated federal statutes that had to do uh, with criminal civil rights. They initiated an investigation to see, okay, we're going to run it concurrently with what the state is doing. We're gonna open up our own investigation. It'll be interesting here because as of now, we know that the charge is currently against the McMichaels. There's a murder charge and there's an aggravated assault charge. There is a lot of debate with respect to the Zimmerman case whether or not the prosecution overreached. And the reason the debate exists is because the prosecution has the burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. They have the burden. They have the responsibility of proving each element that there was a reasonable certainty that each one took place. And if they cannot prove that with a reasonable certainty with each element, including self-defense. So it's not even on the defendant's part to prove that they were using self-defense. The prosecution has to prove that self-defense doesn't apply. So like Ruth said earlier, defense literally, they could do nothing. It's all on the prosecution, which is why the debate is if only the prosecution and Trayvon Martin didn't reach so high, maybe if they went for manslaughter, they would have gotten a better verdict. With respect to this case, It'll be interesting to see because in the state of Georgia, to prove murder, a person commits the offense of murder when he unlawfully and with malice aforethought either expressed or implied causes the death of another human being. So essentially someone is guilty of murder if they expressly or impliedly killed someone else. And with respect to express malice, this exists if they deliberately intended to take the life of another human being, which is manifested by external circumstances capable of proof. So it's express malice if prosecution can show the McMichaels deliberately intended to unlawfully kill Ahmad. Malice will be implied if the There was no considerable provocation, but based on this statute and the case law associated with it, I think there's a strong argument. There's strong argument just based on the evidence that we've seen so far that there's definitely malice there, that there's definitely implied intent there, because this man was running away in the opposite direction. These people hopped into their truck. This man did not provoke them. He had nothing to do with them. He had no previous interactions with them that day. He was just going about his own business, and these people hopped into their trucks with their loaded guns. What type of conversation are you about to have with loaded guns? I saw the video only once because I literally cannot stomach seeing another visual of a Black person being killed, but I saw the video And I was in my kitchen, feeding my daughter, and I just burst into tears. To come in, literally point-blank range, and shoot this man and leave him there as if he was an animal. I mean, there are documentaries on Netflix where people are in tears over cats. And I have nothing wrong with pets and animals, but the outcry over cats. Meanwhile, there's a video of a man being killed at point-blank range for jogging. Unlike the Zimmerman case, where people said the prosecution overreached and ultimately ended in acquittal because they couldn't prove each element, I think here with each element as read, just based on the video, a federal investigation being opened here. Particularly in light, in addition to what's going on here with the criminal civil rights statutes that may have been implicated, but the prosecutorial misconduct, we already have Georgia's Bureau investigation going on. We're on our fourth prosecutor. So the first attorney that was appointed. She got it in February. Four days later, she gives it up. And then D.A. Barnhill gets it. And he has ties to the McMichaels. But instead of giving it up, like the first D.A., he holds on to the case. He says that there's not enough evidence to carry out an arrest. He says that there's not enough probable cause. He has a conflict of interest that he never revealed. He never says, and by the way, I know that my son used to work with them. So those are key distinctions there. And Ahmad's mom asked for the recusal. And so he gets ahead of the game and he sends a letter saying, oh and by the way, I am recusing myself and I just want to lay out. I did have a relationship. It's come to light. And I want to let you know that this is what's going on. But the evidence still stands that there wasn't a Enough evidence here to carry out an arrest, which is why months later, I was like, why did this take so long? Coronavirus? No, you got this joint in. February, dog, February, and held on to it and made all types of decisions regarding the case that you had a conflict of interest in and then gave it up only because the public saw the tape. I say all that to say intent may be proven with having an abandoned and malignant heart and no considerable provocation. So there may not be an acquittal, which would allow the federal government to carry out its investigation and not close it like Zimmerman. And also the fact that there's clear prosecutorial misconduct may trigger a red flag as to, okay, let's see what else the the DA's office is doing here
0: you hit the needle on the head and yes the prosecutorial misconduct was repulsive and needs to be investigated to see what else was going on in that district on that note Ahmad's mom has publicly declared that she would like the death penalty given the facts in Georgia statutes should the verdict be second degree murder manslaughter or not guilty and why
1: Honestly, I would love to see it go so far to where they're seeking the death penalty, but they go for the death penalty, it's way too high for an ex-law enforcement officer, number one. Number two, his son is 34 years old. These are arguments that you know I see being made in negotiations. So I think going for the death penalty is too high. I'd love to see them do life in prison, not eating steak and crab in a isolated prison cell, but I definitely think that they need to suffer. I don't think it should be manslaughter because manslaughter is adequate provocation and the best example that they give us in law school, or at least my law school, your spouse walking in on you having an extramarital affair. And, you know, that provokes you and boom, you shoot and kill. There was no time to think about it. I do not believe that there's adequate provocation here. So I'm going to eliminate a manslaughter. He had way too much time to think about it. Time to call his neighbor. Time to call his son. Time to grab his shotgun. Time to grab his son's shotgun. This was very planned out. I don't think it's second degree either. I think it's first degree premeditated murder. This was clearly thought out and there was clear malice involved. I would have felt differently, maybe just a tad bit, if they pulled up on him with just regular hand-sized guns unloaded. Mm -hmm. But you loaded two shotguns to pursue this guy. Hell no.
2: They killed that man. A modern-day lynching. It was thought out. And then to turn around and make up this story with regards to burglaries that they used to justify their actions, I see intent. When you shoot, particularly, again, it'll be interesting to see how his law enforcement background comes into play here because you're a sharpshooter. You're, you're trained to shoot. What else could have been your intent? When you have the background, when you know where to shoot, where you, where you have the training available to you, whether or not you took it, but you have the training available to you. I think there's enough here to, based on my personal opinion and the legal facts involved so far, because we don't know what else is there, to show intent and to show that a murder took place. Yeah, with respect to the death penalty, I have my contentions with that. With respect to this case, I agree wholeheartedly with Ruth. Not only may it be overreaching, but also it will be very interesting to see how that would play out with this fourth prosecutor. For those of you who may not know, the fourth prosecutor has been appointed and her name is Joyette Holmes and she is a Black woman. Just that in itself, this Black woman, her background, she's the first woman and the first Black woman. And so in that position, already tenuous, 2019 she was appointed now it's 2020 and for her to seek the death penalty it's already debatable whoever would have been that it was an overreach you tack a woman of color's name on there as a prosecutor and i can see that being not only debated as a matter of law but critiqued and portrayed as race based and even though she has all the credentials in the world and even if the evidence showed wildly in her favor that decision would be questioned for the rest of her career. As women of color, I know you guys feel it. I'm going to speak for myself. I'm not going to speak for y'all, but it's that double consciousness. You're aware of who you are and you're aware of how you're being viewed in the white gaze. So you're constantly playing a game of chess where you have to think several steps ahead with respect to every move you make because there is a presumption of incompetence when it comes to Black women. So here you have this Black female attorney who could have all the credentials in the world, but if she was to seek the death penalty in this case, it would be a wrap. I think it was a chess move, honestly, on the part of the state of Georgia appointing her because, I mean, how frequently are Black women designated clean up the mess of others? They have pigeonholed this Black woman and told her, you do it. What is she to do? I don't know. So is the death penalty available on paper? Via statute it is. But in our society, with respect to all the players involved, I don't know. And if it's not, I really want us as a people not to go after Joette Holmes and say, she did that. No, she didn't. She didn't.
0: It will be interesting to see the verdict on this case. So my next question is, arguably, stand your ground and citizen's arrests are a deadly combination, historically speaking, especially in the South where de jure egregious and heinous crimes were committed to black bodies for centuries and unfortunately still perpetuated more or less today as de facto. Should these statutes be repealed, one can argue either way. Personally, I respect the police officers who
2: carry out their duties with respect and with a genuine desire to protect and serve. But I mean, not just the statutes, but the whole dang body. The police force, it wasn't created for us. It was used to police slaves to preserve slavery. Now you're going to the statutes that were created in favor of white bodies. You have to take a look to see whether or not there are constitutional challenges that can be made with respect to how they're applied. These statutes are not universally applied to us. So, if they're going to exist, then modify how they're carried out so that they're applied universally. And if they're not applied universally, then there's a constitutional challenge to be made as to whether or not they need to exist and they need to be repealed. Because, with respect to the citizens' arrest, I know we've all discussed it. If it was three black bodies, and saw a white man jogging in broad daylight with no weapons, no immediate factor showing that they've committed a crime. Would that citizen's arrest argument even be available to us to the point where the district attorney would say there's no probable cause as to an arrest? I don't think so. It needs to be repealed because it is not universally applied. And so it is not real law.
0: You're absolutely right. It's not law. And this is a perfect segue into my next question, Jesus and Justice. It appears to church is always silent and I'm generalizing when we should be the point of reference in my opinion given that the foundation of God's kingdom was founded on righteousness and justice through love and faithfulness according to Psalm eighty-nine fourteen. What role should the Christian community play when it comes to justice related issues?
2: I think our faith should speak to our involvement in social justice as you so eloquently put it. Too often I have seen in both Uh, And in all types of churches, I went to predominantly white church while in Pennsylvania attending law school, and they were very silent on the issues of social justice. There were sermons all over the map with respect to who God was and gospel, but there were never conversations as to how the gospel should inform our desire as Christians to go out and exercise our social justice and show the love of God. Becoming involved is a case for Christ. It's a case for God. It's a case for the gospel. It's a case for um, showing that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know, I think of it from a mother standpoint. I'm
1: somebody's mom, and one of my children just so happened to be a Black young man. And I've never been in the situation where somebody was taken from me because they were murdered. Yes, I'm a Christian, yes, I'm a believer, but I can't see me forgiving somebody who kills my child. I pray to God that I never have to be in such a situation. It's so easy to talk about forgiveness, yeah, I hope you find Jesus while you're in there, too. But I don't see me opening my mouth and saying, I forgive you. I get scared every day my husband leaves the house. I don't know if he's coming home. I don't know if my dad's coming home. I don't know if my brother's coming home.
2: I mean, that's where I stand. I think my sentiments had to do more with what the church can be doing. Black men and women, we're a target every freaking day. If, heaven forbid, anything happened to my family,
0: I'm coming after everybody. Everybody.
2: And I'm coming with the Holy Spirit.
0: Jesus wasn't no pun, okay? Man, this can be an entire segment in of itself. The fear of no return within the Black community and the fact that Jesus was not a punk. I think there's a common misconception that Christians are passive and that is not the case. For the interest of time, I'm going to ask the last question. Aside from signing petitions, posting, and protesting, what role can people play to be proactive and or productively reactive? Emotions are important, and I do not want to invalidate that because we are humans, right? But at the same time, to effectuate change, we need to get more involved. So what can we do? I know that because of the history
2: of systemic racism and its impact on people of color, a lot of us are simply discouraged with whether or not our vote even matters, whether or not our voice even matters, and rightfully so. With that being said, I do not want us to give up on voting and learning about the political system, learning about the individuals that are on the ballots, not just when it's time for a presidential cycle to take place, but the local elections, the midterm elections, all of those elections matter.
0: As Marta stated, your political engagement at all levels, local, state, and federal are important. Exercise your right to vote and stay informed on the issues, the statues. Be well-read so that way you can be well-spoken. Thank you again to Marta and Ruth for their insight. It was invaluable. I hope you all learned something from it. If you'd like to connect with my guests, please visit my website at beproximate.org. Thank you for tuning in. Be proximate to people. Advocate for transformative justice and seek God's will and fervent faith. Challenge yourself to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Share with family and friends and tune in next time. Be proximate.